Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, on this week's episode, I'm joined by the 1999-2000 Vezina Trophy winner, Olaf Kolzig. This Washington Capitals legend racked up over 300 wins during his NHL career, along with two All-Star nominations in the King Clancy Trophy in 2006. Ole the goalie won the Calder Cup in 1994 with the AHL's Portland Pirates and appeared twice for Germany in the Olympics. He also fought the best man in his wedding, which you are all about in this episode. Really, one of my heroes growing up as a goaltender, Olaf Kolzig, born in South Africa. You went to Canada, to the United States. You played hockey in Tri-City and Juniors, and you're actually German. It's such an interesting story, and maybe you could fill us in on the background of how you got to junior hockey and all these moves that you made as a child before you got there. Yeah, so a good buddy of mine uh, in Florida dubbed me German-Africadian, which kind of covers all the uh, uh, the countries that uh, that I have some sort of contact with and um but uh, yeah my my parents are from germany and, and they both uh once they left uh university they both got into uh, the hotel industry and they started in johannesburg um they were married uh they were married down there and then shortly after uh, i was born um because he was in the hotel business and uh he got transferred around quite a bit spent a few stops in europe before coming to canada uh, when i was four years old um, and that's when I got introduced to the game. Um, ironically, uh, you know, it was in Edmonton, you know, back then you played in a lot of outdoor rinks. Um, and so the first time I got introduced to being a goaltender, I had a kid come down on me on a breakaway and I was so petrified to get hit by the puck in minus 30 degree weather that I actually hit behind the net. <laughs> so that was a, nobody, I think after that, nobody ever foresaw me becoming um, an NHL goaltender um, that uh, that had a, you know had a fairly lengthy pro career, but um, I spent a little bit of time in Edmonton before moving up to the Northwest ter- Northwest Territories for a year. Uh, we then moved to Toronto, um, probably four or five years there, and then we moved to Nova Scotia, and that's really where um, I got a little bit more serious with the game. Um, in a very good midget team. Uh, we went to the national championship one year. Uh, I was scouted by, uh, at the time was new Westminster of the Western hockey league. Um, and so they put me on their, they put me on their protected list. Um, shortly after, after, uh, that happened, I moved actually out to British Columbia. Um, my dad, again, different hotel. Um, Spent the first year up and down in uh, between Junior A and and, uh, and the Western League. Uh, after that season, um, our uh, 
our owner decided to move the team down to Tri-Cities in Washington State. Nobody at the time understood why. I mean, it was in the middle of the desert, and, um, you know, we were leaving a very respect, respected community in New West and a lot of history in the WHL, so it was, it was a little bizarre. But um, we came down, and we were treated like rock stars. We 6,000-seat arena is full every night for two years. Um, you know, we played the first 17 games of our first year on the road, because our building hadn't been finished yet. Uh, you know, fans would be cheering the Zamboni driver when he came on the ice. It was just, you know, they were naive to the game, but uh, it was it was a new form of entertainment for them. And, and um, you know, we just fell in love with the city, and the city fell in love with us. And it was just, it's just a great relationship. And, you know, that's why I still, well, I, I guess I call it home now. I live out here. So, um, played uh Played that first full year here in Tri Cities, and I got drafted in '89 by by the Washington Capitals, and uh, made the team right out of our, my first training camp. Uh, we actually went; we were the first NHL team to go to Russia, um, along with Calgary. Uh, myself, Byron Defoe, um, another former goalie. We were both the the two top picks that year for the Caps, and they took us both over to uh, to Russia for that trip. I had a fantastic training camp. And really, I had no expectations going into camp. I just wanted to make a mark and, you know, knew I was going back to junior. And so as a result, you play stress-free, pressure-free. And I had a great training camp and made the team um, and stuck with the Caps for the first six weeks, I guess, into that NHL season before getting sent back uh, to Tri-Cities. Um, and then it probably took me another, well, I'd say four or five years uh, before I finally established myself again as an NHL goalie. Um, came back to Tri Cities not with not with bad attitude, just the wrong attitude. Um, I thought to myself that you know I made the NHL my first year of training camp, coming back to junior, I should be able to dominate down here. Well, you don't realize that when you're playing in the NHL, you've got you've got five players playing in front of you that do their job extremely well. The defense know what they're doing, the forwards know what they're doing. Come back to junior, and it's not like that. So. Um, Anyway, needless to say, I struggled. Uh, took a while to get my confidence back, get my game back. And then um, in 97, I finally got my uh, my first starting job. And as a result, it's almost like, you know, we talked about earlier about you getting your first taste of the NHL due to my injury in Tampa. Well, I finally got the number one spot in Washington because Billy Ranford uh, had gotten injured in the first game of the season, and I never looked back. We went to the Stanley Cup Finals that year. Um, lost to Detroit, unfortunately, but for me, obviously, it was my breakout season. And, you know, I had another, another 13, 14 years um, of, uh, of NHL hockey after that. So, yeah, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of memorable moments, but um, obviously it's something that I'll always – always treasure. It's unbelievable that you spent the better part of your career. I don't know whether it was 13, 14 years. I haven't added them up here in Washington. You did all this moving around before you got there, whether it was through the minors as a kid, you know, even junior a little bit, you're in Nova Scotia, end up in the Western league. You're all over the place. So it must've been nice to have that in Washington for all those years. And you kind of went through your process of getting there and we glossed over a little bit of it. And I, I'd like to go back even to Tri-City for a brief bit, which you're now part owner of. And I noticed, though, that during the time you were there, one, 
You had a lot of penalty minutes and you also scored a goal. And aside from your play as a goaltender, which carried you through, tell me what it was like playing in that league back then. This is 88, 89, 90. Was it a lot different than it is nowadays? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like, you know, it's like the East Coast League or the American League back 30 years ago. It was a lot. You know, it, I mean, it had a little bit of slap shot in it. You know, you had to, as a player, you had to be accountable. You had to stand up for yourself. Um, I think it was a lot more physical. It definitely, definitely wasn't as fast as it is now. Uh, the skill level wasn't nearly what it is now. Um, but, yeah, back then, um, you know, one of my idols growing up um, was Ron Hextall. And, you know, he was a big, tall guy, and, and so was I. And I had, a, I had a fiery temper just like he did. And so I really, I think, you know, my last year midget really started to handle the puck. Because back then, you know, puck handling goaltenders were – were non they're like they're like unicorns they're non-existent um you know you had the odd one and obviously Hextall was the the best at the time and so I wanted to kind of model my game after him and um so I became a very good puck handler and uh uh and like I said a little bit of a temper so if anybody you know got under my skin or bumped me in the crease you know I would take a you know, slashing penalty or roughing or tripping or um, so the penalty minutes added up, um, the coaches weren't too happy about that. Um, but as long as I, as long as I did my job and killed off the penalty, they, you know, they, they were okay with it. And, um, so the one year, the year that I got back, sent back from, from Washington, um, it was in the late November, we were playing the Seattle Thunderbirds and, uh, in the game, I had gotten a penalty already and I got an assist. So we had a two goal lead, um, it's probably about a minute left in the game and Seattle dumped the puck in. It was delayed offside, so it gave me plenty of time to get behind the net, corral the puck, look up ice, and, and take a shot. And I'd love to say that I, I lofted it 30 feet in the air and it landed flat and, and went right in the middle of the net, but the truth was I got it about two feet off the ice, and one of my, one of my forwards actually had to lift his leg to let the puck get by him, and it just spun and just barely got inside the left post. Uh, to make it 5-2, and it was unbelievable. The, the bench cleared. Uh, it was like we just scored an overtime of a, you know, game seven, and um, that was actually that was probably the best game I played uh, once I got back from from Washington. Um, so it was long overdue, but I was so excited. And the next day, I, I got a call from Jack Button, who was uh, the director of player personnel with Washington, and. Um, thinking I'm getting a congratulatory call and he's like, so I heard, uh, heard he had a pretty good game last night, scored a goal, got an assist. And, uh, I said, yeah, Jack, it was unbelievable. Um, the bench cleared. It was, it was just, it was the best feeling ever. And he kind of put me in my place and, uh, paused for a second and said, well, you know, only, um, the last time we checked, we drafted you to stop the puck and not try and score goals. And you have not done a very good job of it. And I tell you what, I don't know if I handled the puck the rest of the season. I stayed in I stayed in my crease and just focused on trying to stop the puck. Um, Jack had that kind of an influence on me. Not to say that it it made my year any better, but um, he definitely put things back into perspective and 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 got me focused uh, 
back on uh, on doing what I was supposed to be doing. Talk about a shot across the bow. I mean, I scored one in juniors too. Oh, it was yeah. a highlight of my life at the time. <laughs> Same thing you're talking about. And then the next moment you get that phone call. I mean, you were a 19th overall pick though to the Capitals. They had really high expectations for you, obviously. And coming out of junior, you ended up playing that next season, 90-91, half of it in the ECHL for the Hampton Roads Admirals. Was that a big blow to your to your ego, or did you take it in stride, and were you able to to take that and move forward with it, and, and growing your game and getting acclimated to professional hockey? Yeah, so no, it totally was a it totally was a blow to my ego because I'd made the Caps uh, training camp the year before, and um, uh, you know, but knowing now being on the other side of the door in management, um, you realize that that the team has a plan for you. They're not they're not sending you somewhere because they want to punish you, you need to play. And, uh, that year I was not going to play a lot in Baltimore. We had, you know, we had, uh, Sean Simpson, who was third round pick, um, uh, played for world junior team. Jim Rivnack was a coveted college player who ended up having a very solid pro career. Uh, Don Beaupre was, uh, at the peak of his career. So there was a lot of depth there. And I think they ended up trading for Mike Liute. And so I went down, at first with a bit of a chip on my shoulder, a little upset, but, you know, once I got there and, and, um, got to know, you know, got to know the area, very, very nice area, new teammates. Um, John Brophy was our coach. So that was, that was a little intimidating too at first. Uh, here's that I watched growing up, you know, on the bench for the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, snow white hair and when he got mad his face would almost turn purple and he's wearing and, a bolo tie you know, he always had on <laughs> where's the bolo tie right like so you're yeah. just like oh my god what, you know this is slap shot yeah and and that that's you know at that time that's kind of what was spinning in my head and and um i remember the first game at home um i gave up a goal from center ice first home game um and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is going to be hell. So we get in the uh, we get in the dressing room between periods, and I'm just I'm just waiting to hear it from Brof. And he comes in, and he gave the forward crap for not tying up the player that shot the puck. From Didn't the even red look line. at me <laughs> from the red line, right? I'm like, okay. Anyway, so come to find out, um, Brof was. Rolf was a guy who he understood the game. There's mistakes in games and what he wanted was a guy that cared, a guy that worked um, and would show up for his teammates. And, you know, I'd been there for probably three weeks before this was my first home game. I, I played a bunch of, a couple games uh, on the road, but um, so he had a lot of, he'd already built up a lot of respect for me just because of, Maybe internally I didn't feel like I belonged there, but I didn't show it externally. You know, I worked hard. Um, uh, you know, I I showed that I cared. I wanted to be there. And, and so after that happened, it really just sort of like, okay, you know, you've you got away with one here. You know, let's start focusing on, on what you're here for is to get better, play a lot of games. And ended up having a pretty good season. I, I blew out my shoulder oh god probably near the end of the season and and was in and out of the lineup during the playoffs um and then uh basically sat from sat from the press box to watch us win you know the kelly cup at the time but 
just be in there and, 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 and being part of that winning atmosphere. And, you know, anytime you win a championship with a group of guys, those guys are, you know, they're special and they'll always have a special place in your heart and you'll always have that, that special bond. So, um, you know, after that year, um, I, uh, you know, I knew I had a ways to go. I knew I had a ways to go. And, and for me, it was a lot, was it between my ears? And, um, like I told you earlier, when I went to Washington for my first training camp, I didn't have any expectations. I, you know, 19 year old goalie is not going to make the NHL's first camp. So I was already resigned to the fact I was going back to junior and I just went in carefree. Well, now, you know, now I'm a pro and now, you know, there's no getting sent back. Like you're, this is your livelihood. And so I would get too high and too low, you know, too, uh, too mad when we lost games, uh, too, you know, pissed off when I gave up a bad goal. Um, and so it took me a few years to finally become mentally strong enough to play the position at the pro level. And then once that, that happened, then I, I really started to make a lot of gains. I, um, I got loaned out to Rochester the next year because Byron Defoe was coming in for his first year pro and they wanted him in Baltimore so that they could, you know, oversee him day in and day out. And this is my second year pro. So they felt that, you know, I was, um, you know, I was strong enough mentally to, to, to go to a different organization. But again, you know, now I'm thinking, okay, now, you know, I played half the year last year on the coast. They're long, you know, they're, they're done with me already. And this is my second year pro. And I'm thinking the organization has already given up on me. And, and like I said, you don't realize they have a master plan. So I go to Rochester with a chip on my shoulder. Um, and, you know, I said to myself, listen, just play for yourself. Make an impression in Rochester. Who knows, maybe the, the Sabres will sign you the next year. And um, so I ended up having I ended up having a career year. We We went to the... Went to the Calder Cup Finals. We lost to Cape Breton, um, but we upset the uh, the uh, Binghamton Rangers, um, and they were they were the team back then. I think it was ninety one, ninety two. They broke every American League hockey record, um, fewest games lost, most points, yada yada yada, and we ended up beating them seven games. So uh, it was a very successful season for me. I came out of that season. And when we were talking contract with the Caps, you know, they, I had a serious interest from Buffalo and Boston and they, uh, they asked me, what is it going to take to, to keep you here? And my agent just threw it out there, said he needs a, you know, a one-way contract. And I ended up getting, I ended up getting a one-way contract out of the deal. But for me, like I said, the biggest hurdle was, was the mental part. And um, then after that, there were some other things that, that kind of, uh, kept me from being a full-time number one guy, um, timing being a lot. Then next year, you know, here I am signed the big, you know, the one-way contract, which, you know, back in the early nineties, isn't the one-way contract that guys are getting nowadays. Um, but still it was significant for that time. And so we go in, we go into the next season and we have a lockout. I think it's 94 season, 93, 94 season. We have a lockout. So I miss, I miss the first half of that season. And, you know, I'm just, I just come out here. I came back to Tri-Cities and, and skated with, with the junior team and just tried to stay in shape as well, as good as I could. And, and then that was the first year that Jim Carrey came out of Wisconsin. Ace. Um, and he was another draft pick. 
Yeah. yeah, ace. Yeah. And <laughs> he was another draft pick of the Caps. And so, you know, while, you know, while I'm sitting on the sidelines during this lockout, um, you know, Byron and ace are both playing in Portland and ace just got shot out of a cannon. I think he came, he came in and, you know, won 14 in a row or something and just set all these, all these American league records for, for a rookie and, and so anyway, the lockout ends early January. So we all come back. We have like, I don't know, seven, eight, eight day training camp and the season starts. Well, it was Rick Tabaracci and I are the goalies that year. And between the two of us, I don't think we won a game for the first 10. So with the success that Ace was having down in Portland, they decided to call him up. So they flipped you guys out and you went yep. back to Portland for that year. Well, they had three of us for a while and then Tabby uh-huh. got traded to Calgary, but so Ace comes up and, you know, you couldn't, myself, I couldn't be like, I wasn't discouraged or upset at the time because, Hey, I had the, I got an opportunity and I, I didn't take a hold of it. Like I was given a chance to be a number one guy or at least, you know, to be a full-time NHL guy. And I just didn't take full advantage of it. So Ace comes up, he plays great. Uh, I think we ended up, yeah, I think we ended up making the playoffs that year in Washington. Um, I ended up going back down to Portland for a little bit for conditioning and it came back up at the end of the year. Um, we made the playoffs and Ace struggled. That was Ace's biggest thing is that he struggled in the playoffs. Um, that was the first year that we played Pittsburgh. Um, in, well, in my, in my era, it was the first time we played Pittsburgh and, and, you know, Ace struggled. I think he got yanked. I got yanked both times, game one and two. How do you end up with the Ace nickname? Do you know who gave it to him? I mean, I know it comes from Jim Carrey, yeah. Ace Ventura, but who gave it to him? Because that's an unbelievable nickname. I honestly, I think it was me. I just <laughs> you labeled him. <laughs> well, it was yeah because I mean Jim Carrey, right? Like yeah, uh, yeah Ace Ventura, um, and the Mask, right? He played he played in the Mask, so it was kind of the same thing. Did he did he go along with it? Did he enjoy it? Oh yeah, he he enjoyed it, and you know what and. And I, I can honestly say I I got along great with with Ace and uh, he was a really good teammate. The only you know the only thing is I don't know if he really I think he just wanted to make enough money in the game and, and then and then retire. Like I don't think he was really passionate about the game of hockey like like a lot of players are. And that frustrated me because you know here's this kid who's got all this talent, is playing great, and I don't know, just maybe wasn't as I knew for sure he wasn't as passionate about it as I was, but. You know, he was finding a way to have success, and I wasn't, and it, it just drove me crazy. Yeah, um, that's, it's really hard to su- sustain the success if you don't have that drive. I mean, I was the same way with that, that I it would drive me crazy when I'd see goalie partners out there dogging it in practice, because I was just just driven. Like, I'd, so the only way I knew how to practice from, I guess, from, like, college is really when I figured it out, that I had to absolutely send it every day in practice to just get a chance to get in the net. And I couldn't stand watching somebody not work as hard as they should be. Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, and then, like you said, it, it eventually it catches up to the player. Right. And and so as a result, Ace didn't have nearly the, the length of career that he should have had. And um, I try to tell the young guys that now it's it's hey, you might not be getting what you want right now, but be persistent. Keep working because eventually good things happen to good people, people that want it the most 
it's usually going to work out for. You know, you've kind of come full circle with some of the coaches you've had uh, in some instances here, because I look back to that Rochester team that you got loaned out to. You met Mitch Korn. He's a goalie coach there. You guys got to work together again in Washington. Barry Trotz, you had at several places. You had him, I believe, in Baltimore and then again in Portland. Can you just tell me a little bit about the relationship you had with those two guys? Well, Trotsy even goes further back than that. Trotsy was Washington's Western League scout mm. uh, when I was playing, and he's the one that actually scouted me. So Trotsy and I have had a relationship ever since day one, and uh, um, he got into the coaching side of it and, and was in Baltimore. Um, I didn't play for him a ton in Baltimore because that's when I got loaned out to Rochester, but I played for him the year after because we, we connected again in Portland. And we ended up we ended up winning the Calder Cup that year. Right. Um, there was a so, great graphic. There was a great graphic from that actually that you were the last goaltender to go to the Calder Cup Finals for two different teams. I guess what ninety three and then ninety four, and then I did it two years ago between Syracuse and Texas. And so the American League had that graphic, and I just thought that was really cool because you know us being teammates at least for that little bit of time and, and that parallel, but. Thankfully for you, right. you, you won the thing, though. I didn't win in either of them, so I've been the bridesmaid twice. <laughs> yeah, well, you need to have the horses in front of you. <laughs> yeah, well, we were pretty good, man. It just didn't pull it off in time. But what was it like with Mitch Korn in 19... 19- like, give me a, a window into Mitch Korn 1993. Back then when he was just green and getting his feet wet, what was he like to work with? He was, I mean, a lot like a lot like he is today. He hasn't changed a lot other than he doesn't wear those Coke bottle glasses anymore. <laughs> LASIK was really good to him. But he, yeah, but he had like, he was, you know, one of the first goalies or first goalie coaches that came out, you know, and used all these different gadgets. Um, a lot like golf instructors do now where they come out, you know, they bring out all these toys that, that somehow work for the golf swing. Well, Mitch had that for goalies. He, you know, there was just a, and for me, it was really the first time that I had like a, serious goaltending coach you know and he obviously was working for buffalo but he came down to rochester and he was just as he was just as good uh working with me as he was with billy pie who was my partner at the time and and a buffalo draft pick and you know and and mitch i think mitch helped a little bit in getting me to be more uh how can i say it um i guess mentally tougher you know because he was tough he didn't baby you in practice. Like if you were dogging it, he'd give it to you. If you were, you know, not doing the drill right, he'd give it to you, but he'd also give, he was a fair guy. Like he'd give you but he'd give you praise if you're doing things well. Um, so I, I had a great relationship with Mitch and I had one ever since. Um, and then obviously, you know, we, we get together, we're working together in Washington again. So what he's done with, with the goalies that he's had is, is, is really, is really remarkable. You know, he turned Braden Holpe into a Vesna winner. You know, Robin Leonard uh, was a uh, was a finalist um, and had an unbelievable year. So, no matter where Mitch goes, he has an impact. Something about you that when I was talking with people, knowing you were coming on, we talked about was that obviously you're a big guy, six four, two twenty five. I guess is what I think you're listed as. But well, yeah, I haven't been two twenty. I haven't been two twenty five and. Since I retired. <laughs> yeah. But at your playing weight, right? But, uh, you know, you always, yeah, look big, you always look big in the net. And I don't mean just your sheer size. It seemed like you, the way you wore your equipment really aided in that. And I'm curious if that's something that you really worked on or if it's just purely by chance that your gear worked for you that well. Because 
correct me if I'm wrong here too, like you were a Heat and CCM guy, I think your entire career. So were you really big into your gear or was that just kind of by chance? I wasn't as nitpicky about my gear as some guys that I play with are. Um, and I really didn't wear, you know, when I, I think when I played with you in Tampa, I, I might've been the first time I went, I went to a coho chest protector, mm-hmm. chest and arm. It was the golden black one. I'm trying to remember the model number, but that was really the first one that, that was big and bulky. And I, and I don't know why, maybe I figured, geez, I'm almost 40 years old, you know, trying to give myself a little bit of an advantage. I don't know, but I hated it. So for the most of my career, I, I wore actually gear. You know, if I was supposed to wear an XL, I would have worn mm-hmm. L. Um, I just felt like I moved around the net more. My pads, I wore, God, what I wear, 36s. Um, and I probably should have been wearing 38s. But again, uh, I didn't want to go as small as Marty Berdura. It looked like he's wearing catalogs on his on his chins, but but I didn't want to look like Manny Legacy either with my pads coming up to <laughs> right. my, you know, my waistline. So um, it, for me, I just... I just, I felt I was big enough and I just wanted movement. I wanted to be able to move my, you know, my game was obviously wasn't speed induced game. Mine was more strategic and, and use my size to, to force guys to either hit me or miss the net. Uh, but I felt like I was athletic and, and uh, agile enough to, to get East West if I needed to. And you know, you know, Back in my heyday, it was it was a different game. You know, the D could clutch and grab and tie up, and and you know, so as a goaltender, if you're if you're facing a two on one or in any sort of odd man rush, you know that your D man's going to be all over the backdoor guy. And and for me, with my size, I could just challenge the shooter, and more times than not, he's either going to miss me, hit the post, or or I get the save on it. So. Um, I see guys, you know, and I, I've seen guys, you know, like Dominic Hasek, and I've seen. What's his name in New York? Lundquist. Henrik. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you see them out of their equipment, and you're like, how are these guys athletes? Like, how they should be, you know, they should be like jockeys on a horse. They're so <laughs> slight and small. Yeah. But then when you see them in the net, it's like, how could they be as big as me? Like, how did, how is Hank's shoulders that big? And, and you know, how did Hasek look so big in the net? And, you know, they, they enjoyed wearing the bigger gear. To be totally honest, man, I'm really surprised at the longevity you had in your career and not being, it didn't seem to beat your body up for as, as quite frankly, as big as you are. You know, you're built big shoulders, big frame, uh, but you played tons of games. Every year as a starter, you're plus 60 games, 70 games, you know, so it didn't really factor in much with you, which is pretty amazing because now bigger guys really beat it up so hard when they're young that you're seeing hip knee problems. I want to know, though, what you think the biggest changes were for you that you had to make from the time you became a pro until 2009. I mean, that's almost 20 years, and the game changed so much. And your era especially, I think of you and Sean Burke and Manny Legacy and other people that played during this time frame, how much their their game evolved and progressed. So what did you think the biggest changes were that you had to make? Well, uh, well, there's a couple things. I mean, you know, when you first in eighty eighty nine when I got drafted, and and you did your, you know, your testing, and and you know, you got your workout from the strength conditioning guy. There wasn't a there wasn't a position specific workout. Everybody worked out the same. You tested the same. So, you know, I'm doing I'm doing bench press and military shoulder press, and just like the D and the forwards are doing. And so, you know, that changed for me. I became, you know, as a as I stuck around longer and longer, the, the fitness aspect changed and it became more, 
position specific and he didn't see goalies do the bench press anymore. It was about flexibility and, you know, core strength and lower body strength and uh, agility. And, and, and so that was the, that was probably the first thing. Um, you know, and then the second thing is I had to, and like I said earlier, you know, that was back in the era when you could clutch and grab and I could be more aggressive. Well then, you know, that stuff got taken away in the early two thousands and Dave Pryor, my old goalie coach always told me, you can play as far out as you, as you want, as long as you don't get beat on the back door. So, you know, I had, I was very aggressive at the time. And then once the clutching and grabbing all got taken out, I had to play back and be a little bit more conservative. And so what that did was, you know, my tracking was always fairly good. Um, but I had to track even better because I was giving up just a little bit more net than I, than I did and being more patient on my feet, not just automatically dropping all the time so that I'm not getting, you know, beat up high. And so my game had to evolve that way. And then, and I was always probably up until about a year or two before we got together in Tampa, when I was in Washington, I always, I was always a goalie that got up on the wrong foot. And Dave and I, Dave and I were, were always working on, on getting somewhere on your feet. So as, as opposed to goalies now, you know, they drop, they drop down in the reverse VH and they're, they're sliding back and forth on their knee and low plays. And, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't the game back then for me. It was, I was getting, I was getting post to post. I was coming to the top of the crease back down, you know, low, the far post opposite side post on my feet. And for me, that worked. I don't know if that could work for me nowadays. The game is so fast and it's so East West. Um, I understand why there is a lot more, time spent on on the knees and um but having said that you know if i was healthy and and you talk about my health and um for the most part i was healthy but then those last two years i tore my i had a labral tear in my hip my last year in washington which meant i was basically i I couldn't put any weight on my leg all summer that year before i came to tampa just so that i could be able to you know put my body in that position again and then you know, when I was in Tampa, shortly, shortly after the season started, I tore my biceps tendon. And, and so at that point for me, I knew I was done. My body was starting to really fall apart. And, and, you know, since then, within the last six years, I've had both my hips, uh, done. So like it's, they're both metal hips. Uh, so it caught up with me later on in my career, but I did take very good care of myself during my career. Um, like I said, there was a lot of, guys would crash the net and I would have, you know, I had 225 pounds mm-hmm. and because, you could stand of, your because of the way easily. I worked out, because, yeah, because of the way I worked out like a forward or defenseman, I was really, I was pretty strong. And so if I did get run, I never put myself in a vulnerable position because I was able to kind of hold myself steady. And, but like I said, at the end of my career, it really started catching up with me. And, um, but yeah, you, you have to adapt. Um, and I found that out you find that out as, as a coach as well. Like you have to adapt and, and you know, when we not so much more when, when you first came in, but say 10, 15, 20 years before that, when I first came in, um, you know, you had a coach and you had 20 players that had to adhere to the coach. So whatever the coach's style was, you had to adhere to that. Now, nowadays it's the opposite. The coach has to adjust to 20 personalities and a certain way, to coach a player that's maybe not worked for one guy. Like you could be one guy needs to get a kick in the ass all the time in order for him to play his best. 
another guy needs to be coddled. Some guys just are meant to be left alone. And so, uh, the game is always evolving. And, um, and as a player, you have to, or you see, you see it now with a lot of forwards that, you know, say five, 10 years ago, they were power forwards. Um, you know, they're, they're physical, they get in the corners, they stand in front of the net, but their skating wasn't that good. And now it's catching up with them. And so now these guys that were integral part of a, a team just really aren't effective on the ice anymore because, you know, they didn't work on their skating. They didn't work on their explosiveness. They're just, they're, they're stuck in a game that, you know, that it worked for them 15, 20 years ago. So the guys that last the longest are always the ones that adapt the most. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at your time that you spent with the Capitals. And to me, aside from it being a great career with one team, there's two seasons that really stand out, though. Uh, the first of which is 97, 98, when you guys went to the Stanley Cup Finals. And the other one's 99, 2000, when you won the Vezina. I'd like you to maybe compare and contrast those two seasons. Because if you look at them on paper, I don't know which one of those I would consider to be a best season. And I'm curious for you, which one you think on a personal level was more gratifying? Oh, for me, it was the uh, the year we went to the finals. Because that, that was for me, that was the year that I broke out of being a backup and becoming a number one guy. And, um, you know, I went, uh, I went to the Olympics that year uh, in Nagano, playing the all-star game. Um, but the success I had in the playoffs was the, was the biggest reason, because the year I won the Vesna. We got we lost in the first round to, uh, to Pittsburgh, and game one of that series we lost eight nothing. So I took a lot of solace, and I, I really you know because all the voting and everything is done before the playoffs start, and um, you know so you you go to the award show and yeah you had a great year, but the thing that people remember is you know that first series against Pittsburgh, and you lost eight nothing in the first game, and. And, uh, and so for me, that was a little, I was a little unsatisfied. I had had a fantastic regular season and, but it it just felt unsatisfying because of how it ended. But whereas in, uh, 97, 98, I had some ups and downs during the regular season, but from day one, right through June, when we lost to Detroit. Yeah. To me, to me personally, that was arguably my best year. That had to be a pretty magical season. Uh, I'm just looking at some of the names that you had on the roster back then, from Bondra to Oates to Housley to Joey Juno, Dale Hunter. What made that team so good, aside from the skill level that you had? Because that's not what takes teams to the finals. It's not just skill. It takes other intangibles to get them there. What got your team to that level that you guys were playing for the Stanley Cup in the finals? Uh, timing, I think, was a little bit of it. Um, you know, the, the teams we... I think, uh, I think Buffalo beat the teams that, that were ahead of us. The standings all got beat in the first and second round. Uh, the Flyers, the, the Devils, uh, I'm trying to remember who else. Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, you still have to beat everybody in order to, to, to win the thing. So, um, But if you look at in the names you just rattled off, if you look at the guys that we had, we had a very intelligent hockey team. Craig Berube, right, at that time was a – was a fourth line guy, tough guy, but what people didn't see is how much of a, a student he was of the game. Uh, he ends up winning the Stanley Cup this year as a coach for St. Louis. Um, Dale Hunter, uh, you know, third line center, tough as nails, uh, character player, but you know, he had success as a coach in Washington, and, and then what he's done in London is 
phenomenal. Phil Housley, uh, successful the USA program, maybe didn't go his way in Buffalo, but obviously um, to get hired in the NHL, you have to have something between the ears. Uh, same with Adam Oates, um, uh, Callie Johansson, uh, another guy, um, Sergey Gonchar, you know, assistant coach with Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that, and Bill Ranford, goalie coach for LA. So from that team, you know, you had a lot of a lot of very smart hockey guys, and and maybe didn't look at it back then at that point, but then you see all the success they're having now uh, on the coaching or management side of things, and now you understand we had a very smart team. Something I don't think a lot of people have ever asked about is what the NHL was like before and after the 0-4-5 lockout that I've heard at least. And I want to get your opinion on it, how coming out of 2004, you know, your Washington team has Yarmir Yager. You have a complete year off. The next time in 0-5-6, he's gone. Alexander Ovechkin comes in. What was the mood like in the locker room, not just for you guys, but really just around the league coming back from that full season off of hockey? Me personally, I was, I, I became very anti-union. I just felt we just didn't have a plan B. We gambled thinking that the owners, you know, were bluffing. And they obviously they weren't. And for me, that was the pinnacle of my earning power. I mean, that was the highest amount of money I was going to make as a player. And uh, so for me, when I got back, I was, I was bitter, very bitter. Um, more so at the union than, than the NHL itself. But um, I just, I, I just like, this is, you know, how, do, how does, how does this, how do we survive this? I mean, first league that's ever, you know, basically threw a whole season out the window and, and, you know, we, we, we traded everybody and their dog. Mm-hmm. We are, we're in total, total rebuild. I think in 03, we end up going, you know, we end up finishing just behind Tampa. We lose to them in the first round. Um, they go on to win the cup the next year and we go in this full sell-off mode and everybody. And they even asked me if I wanted to get traded. And, and at that point I was like, you know, I've been here my whole career. I don't mm-hmm. want to go anywhere else. But that's such and, a, that's such a tough role to be in as a goalie on a rebuilding team. Cause you know, you're going to get shelled every well, year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. And hindsight, hindsight, obviously now, you know, it's, it was, but this part of you thinks so that you could be the answer. Oh you know? yeah, and, you got and, that pride factor. Uh, you think you can? You think for sure you for can sure. be part of the, the success here? Yeah, I totally understand that. But you know, it uh, it ended up being, you know, it was it was a tough couple of years. Fortunately, we had a great group of guys. You know, there was some guys that probably weren't shouldn't have been in the NHL at the time. Um, but that's not their fault. And but they were. We had we had a really tight tight group of guys it wasn't like you know there was bitching and complaining about losing and this and that everybody worked hard we all kind of knew what was going on you know it was the alexander ovechkin sweepstakes you know we <laughs> lack of a better word you know they're hoping we we're going to finish last and so anyway we ended up winning the lottery we won we ended up you know it, it, again in hindsight it, it was it couldn't have worked out any better for the organization you know you got one of the most dominating players of his generation of the game ever. They eventually won a Stanley cup. We, we eventually won a Stanley cup. You know, I'm sure it was probably a lot later than, than they initially expected to, but um, you know, they sacrificed a couple, couple of bad years, low attendance to get to the point where, where we were at last June when we, when we won in Vegas. Um, so it was tough, especially I, I'd been on such a, 
I'd been on such a good run from the first time I established myself in 97, 98. And then to go through those two years and then things were finally starting to look up, made the playoffs against Philadelphia. Um, and for me not to be there anymore after that season, it was, was kind of tough. Um, and then I ended up coming down to Tampa and, you know, I really, you know, maybe the hockey wasn't what I expected it to be. It was a bit of a, you were there. It was a bit of a, it's an interesting a season. soap opera. Yeah. From a lot yeah, of ways. It was an interesting season, but I've never been on a team that actually changed payroll providers three times. That was a first for me. <laughs> it was, well, you got, you know, you had owners. One, one was living there. The other guy was in, in British Columbia and right. they didn't see eye to eye and, yeah, it was it was a it was a bit of a it was a bit of a soap opera and and but anyway, having said that, I mean I'm glad I went down there. I, was, I hindsight, I probably a should have considered retiring after that last season in Washington, um, you know because I ended up getting hurt first month in Tampa and 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 basically became I think I was a part time goalie coach and and part time party organizer so um those aren't bad roles to be in though those are pretty no, good jobs I know, to have. I, know. <laughs> I was talking to i was actually talking to adam hall today and he was telling me how good you were about finding undercover bottles of wine especially from the washington area so adam hall is really happy that he had you as a teammate it's funny he brought his name up he, he texted me here a couple of weeks ago i hadn't heard from him in a while so he was a great great teammate but um you know it because of that, I ended up living 10 years down there after, and I made a bunch of friends and, and, uh, so the hockey wasn't great, but I made, you know, once you leave the rink and it's 70 degrees in January, there's worse places to be. Right. So anyway, it was, it was, it was a tough last three years of my career. I I don't even know. Maybe I won a total of, Oh God, I don't even know. 50 games. If that, maybe not even 50. No, it wouldn't have been 50. That's more than I have. By a long shot. <laughs> 30 or 40 in my last three games. I tell you what, if I yeah, had I know, 50... I but you know what I mean. Like, you're coming up. <laughs> if I had 50 wins in the NHL, I'd be a lot happier than I am right now. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I was on such a good run. And, yeah, for sure. And uh, then all of a sudden, you, you know, you go to that, and it just... It didn't leave a sour taste in my mouth. I still... Hey, listen, they gave me the option. They asked me if I wanted to get traded. I said no. Um and, uh, you know, and then father time took over and, uh, I started falling apart, but, um, no, so it, it, it was tough, but you know what? I, I came back to the organization and, uh, you know, as a result, we ended up winning the Stanley cup last year. So yeah, pretty good place to be. Yeah, in. It, could, it, it wasn't too bad. No, yeah. man. Well, you touched on, it. I mean, you had a young Alexander Ovechkin come in. So as a goaltender, seeing him in practice, what was it like as an 18 year old with him coming across, you know, is he much different than he is today? Could you always see that offensive flair from the first moment you're on the ice with him? Oh yeah. 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 Um, God, I played against him. Actually I was in during the lockout. I actually went to Germany and played the last part of the season in the DEL. And he was over there with his junior team. Uh, We didn't play against each other, but, you know, I saw him play, and I, I talked to him, uh, talked to him before our game, and and I was like, wow, this kid is special. And then uh, that next year, training camp, when he first comes on the ice, um, you know, and the thing with Ovi that I don't know if he gets enough credit for is how he was such a respectful guy um, when he came in as a you know a stud eighteen year old. 
he wanted to learn. He wanted to room with the North American guy because he wanted to learn English right away. He was very respectful of people in practice. That's what I wanted to know. Was he an absolute weapon in practice? He was okay. I mean, he was okay. But then, like I said, once, you know, once that comfort level set in and there was a rapport between us and there was almost like a competition between us, then his, his level turned up a notch. And, you know, there are a few times where he didn't score, but it left a nice bruise on my shoulder or, or, you know, a nice ringing in my ears because it went off the side of my head. Yeah. And uh, so we, we had a lot of fun those two years I played with him. It was, no, the kid was special. And, and you know what, nothing's really, not, not a lot's changed with Ovi. I, I think last year it was a huge step in his leadership development. You could just see, and there was a reason why we won the cup. And it's all because of, of Ovi. He was blocking shots. He was, you know, he was, had guy, had the young guys under his arm and whether he was giving them crap or, or, you know, encouraging them. Like, you could just see he was so much more invested, and, and, and guys fed off that. And um, But the thing with Ovi was, you know, the things that his first two years, the things that everybody, you know, loved about him was his enthusiasm, and it's just his love for the game and his celebrations. You know, now all of a sudden he becomes a big name, and, and um, you know, now the same things that he was doing, he's getting vilified for. Like, you know, I remember the, the the game against Tampa where he scored, and uh, I don't know if you remember it, but he was, dropped his stick behind the net, and he pretended it was a, like it was a fire. I remember it pretty well. It happened 10 feet behind me. I was the one he scored it on. <laughs> oh, were you the one? See, this is the reaction yeah, you get okay, every so... single time. You're the guy he did the hot stick to? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> and then Don Cherry, Don Cherry defended my dignity on Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> Well, you know, that's when you know that's that's when Obi started getting more haters than right. than lovers, and yeah. and you know I'm sure grapes didn't help with that. But yeah, but look how he played in playoffs this year. I mean, he was he was eating shots left and right. Total team commitment. You know, like you can throw all this stuff when you're younger under the bridge because people learn as they get older, and they it's. When you're young and enthusiastic and exuberant, sometimes you just don't think about things. I've been guilty of that. A lot of people have. You know that that's normal when you're a young player. Right. No, but what I'm saying is, is that he was the same way, but because of the success he was getting, and you know he's Russian, and now he was getting vilified for his exuberance and his celebrations, and you know whereas before we all cherished it because oh, here's this young kid from Russia, look how excited he is, and then you know, um, but he he has definitely matured from that. You know he's he's more of a you know when he scores now they're not nearly as exuberant. I don't know if it's it's age and he's you know, wants to save his energy or what, but he's <laughs> definitely more mature and and yeah, he played he played great again this year for us. We just didn't he just didn't get any he didn't get any secondary help like he did last year. You know, where everybody contributed and there's only a couple three guys that really really stepped up for us in the playoffs this year. Let's roll this back a little bit here because you talked about Byron Defoe and I didn't get a chance about the ask about the relationship that you have with him. From what I've gathered, you were best men at each other's weddings. You've had several on-ice fights. Your previous teammates—that's an awful lot going on there. Can you just describe the dynamic you have between both of you guys? Yeah. So yeah. So we were both drafted, and we were, we played against each other in, in Tier Two and uh, and in the Western Hockey League. And at the time, you know, Byron was a he was a pretty highly touted goalie. You know, going into that draft, the preseason, you know, he was. Him and a couple other guys throughout the CHL were, you know, going to be the top picks, and and I had a really break, I had a breakout year that year in junior, and you know, here's this kid, he's six three, you know, takes up a lot of net, and so all of a sudden I became more relevant in the picture, and 
And so every time Byron and I play, he just had this arrogance about him. It just absolutely drove me nuts. And, um, you know, lo and behold, the season ends and, you know, we're both at the draft and I ended up getting picked first by Washington and I'm doing my backstage interviews and everything. And then all of a sudden I hear, and in the second round, the Washington Capitals are proud to select Byron Defoe. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so my here arch I am at the time. I, I couldn't, my arch rival couldn't stand the guy, arrogant, yada, yada, yada. So that's that, that training camp, you know, like I said, we were the only, the only two rookies that, that would end up going to Russia for, for training camp with the team. And, uh, I remember the first, so we just got over, we started in Sweden, spent a week in Sweden. And I remember we got off the plane and the coach says, guys, don't go to sleep. Just try to stay up as long as you can. We're going to go on the ice here in a couple hours. And, uh, so we went to the hotel and yeah, it was tough. You, you, it was tough not to go to sleep, but you didn't. So we got to the rink and I got there and we're going on the ice and I'm like, where's Byron? Well, him and his roommate went to sleep. So we're about 30 minutes into practice, and Byron and I'm trying to think who his roommate was. And they end up, it was John Druce. It was John Druce. And they come, they, they're, they're in their gear, they're at the door ready to get on the ice. And Brian Murray was a coach at the time, said, I don't think so, boys. Go, go in there and take your gear off. So right then I'm like, yes, yes, I must step up on the guy. Good. I can't stand him. I love it. Couldn't happen to a better guy. <laughs> anyway. The trip goes on, you know, we're the two rookies. So we start to start to hang around a little bit more. We realize we both got a lot of, a lot of similar interests. You know, we're both living in British Columbia. Um, so anyway, after the two, three week training camp over there, we came back over and from that point on, we were best of friends. Um, you know, we played that year against each other in, in, in the Western league again, um, played each other in the playoffs. Um, and then back then, because the divisions were unbalanced, uh, the Western division of the Western League had less teams in the East. The teams in the West would play best of nines. So we played, we played Portland in a best of nine series. I think we lost in seven. But um, the, moving forward, you know, we got together training camp again. The next year, he came back to junior. It was my first year pro. Um, the time we spent together in in Baltimore, we roomed together. Um, we ended up buying an investment property in Scottsdale that kind of, it was our off season place. We hung out. We didn't have any serious girlfriends or anything at the time. So, uh, we just did a lot of stuff. And then eventually we both, (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, not in the middle of summer, but it was still fun. Um, but, uh, you know, we ended up getting serious with, with two women and, um, I got married first, uh, in 98. He was my best man, and then he got married a little, little, little bit later in '98, and I was his best man. And then we both became godparents to each other's boys, and um, and yeah, so it was uh, uh, an interesting, interesting start. And then, like you said, we we got uh, we won a Calder Cup together um, in uh, in Portland, um, and then I remember it was the year after we went to the finals. 9899 might have been in November um we were playing the Bruins and they came out hard we were down 2 or 3 nothing 7 minutes into the game and uh so our coach throws out Mark Tenorti, Dale Hunter, Craig Berube, Chris Simon, 
So you kind of knew what was going to happen. <laughs> and the puck drops, and Craig Ruby goes after um, Don Sweeney in the corner, and the next thing you know, it's just a melee. And then um, Dale Hunter gets squared off with um, Jesse Belanger, who was a tough guy back then for them. And so I'm Hunts getting into it with him, and I like, okay, I came out and started helping Hunts. I threw my gloves down, I came out and was helping Hunts. And then next thing I know, I got this guy on my back. I turn around, and it's Byron. And so we, we square off, we grab each other's shoulder, and we just couldn't throw a punch. It was the weirdest thing. Couldn't throw a punch. And we're sitting there, and then we just, we just kind of wrestled back and forth. And um, we started going, we were right by the Boston bench. And, you know, in not so nice of terms, they basically said, you know, would you two idiots stop smile and start stop smiling and start throwing them? And then Byron just got a little bit of a surge and he grabbed my jersey and he pulled it over my head. And I said, Byron, don't you do it. Don't you do it. And to his credit, he didn't do it. And so anyway, the, the, the fight got broken up. We got kicked out of the game. And um, so the next, that summer, he came down here and, and um, you know, topic conversation came up we were with a group of friends and somebody asked you know so who ended up winning that fight and i said well nobody really did i said you know but if i wanted to i could have you know i could have taken him down no problem and then byron pulls out the front it was the front page of the boston globe and he clipped the front page out and he goes hmm well i don't know guys what do you think and it was the picture it was the exact moment the jersey was over my head and he had his fist cocked he carried it around with him everywhere he went because he knew he knew it would come up, and so he always wanted the the, the proof. So we we ended up calling it was called the dance because not one punch was thrown, and and um, you know even the commentators were making they were best men at each other's weddings, and and uh, so yeah I don't, but we remain we remain really close friends. Um, you know both both our sons um, you know suffer with autism, and and so we've been you know we've done a lot of stuff in the autism community and. And we see each other every summer, you know, we go up to Kelowna for a week at a time and, and spend time with the family and we go on vacations together. So, um, the, that, uh, that relationship really, if you would have told me in 87 that, that we would have been, uh, or sorry, 80, uh, 89, that we were going to be best of friends, um, you know, and, and have this lifelong bond, I would have said, you gotta be crazy. And now here we are. Hockey does funny things to people. Away from the rink, you were yes, also known for your you were known for your community work. You know, you were honored for that on several occasions. And like you just alluded to, a lot of that relates to the Carson Kolzik Foundation, who is your son. So maybe if you could go into a little bit what you guys do with the foundation, uh, with athletes against autism that you're also involved with, um, just what you've done with that away from the rink. Yeah, so I mean I've always been I've always been a person that, that knows um that what we do is 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 special um you're getting paid a lot of money to play a game um, but you also realize that you you can have an influence in in what you're doing you can have an influence on on people and and so i was always involved with with children's hospital in dc and um you know any kind of any kind of kids charity um i was always involved and i just i i just felt that being sick and being a kid just shouldn't go hand in hand and um you know, and, and, and this was long before my son was born. And so my son was born in 2001 and, um, you know, 15 months after that, he went in for a regular checkup and, 
and the doctor, you know, noticed some things, and uh, he was very educated in the world of autism, which, which back then, you know, not many doctors were, and so we were fortunate in that aspect. And after the appointment, um, you know, he told my wife that that he thinks we should go to the children's hospital and, and get a uh, get a uh, professional diagnosis because he thinks that you know my boy has autism. And so that rocked our world. We were devastated, and um, you know, but we became proactive right away on you know on what you know how can we help him you know and you, you know you find out you know I've got I got introduced to so many people Scott Mellonby. Uh, was one of the first people I called. Uh, my good friend Stu Barnes was was close with mm-hmm. with Scotty, and 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 Scotty had a boy who uh, who was diagnosed with autism, and so he kind of helped me through the first part. And he didn't sugarcoat it. He said that, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's it's going to be hard. It's a hard road, and um, but this is you know, and he kind of gave us a guideline on where to start, and um, and you find out later um, that getting the diagnosis is a nightmare, but then having resources, you go online and you see like, it's even, it's mind boggling all the things that are out there and not, and not everything works for every kid. It's a combination of certain things that work for certain kids. And, um, and so we finally were able, we were able to, to get our boy on the right program. And, and then, um, you know, you find out too, that the first five years is the most vital for brain development. And, and because our, our doctor had, um, diagnosed him so early. We had, you know, we had a good three and a half years to, to kind of retrain his brain or direct it a little bit different. So, um, you know, we were, we were fortunate and, you know, my son, obviously he's a high functioning and, and, and will probably live with us for the rest of his life. But, um, you know, because of the help we got for these people, um, he's going to live a much better life. And so, Shortly after that, about a year after after Carson got diagnosed, um, Eric, my godson, Byron's son, um, was finally diagnosed. Um, you know, Kim and Byron at the time had, had thought there was always something that, that wasn't quite right with Eric, but they would never get, they didn't have the doctor that I had, that, you know, they wasn't educated in autism. They just didn't know what was going on. And so they, they missed out on a year. But, um, you know, again, once they got the diagnosis, you know, they got put, you know, I helped them, Scott helped them. Um, and so Eric got the necessary treatment and now he's a very high functioning, uh, individual. Um, and, and because of that, you know, the three of us got together and and decided that, you know, how do we, how can we take this to a national level? And so that's when we started athletes against autism, triple a, um, and, and you know what, and people, people were like, well, why are you calling it against autism? And, and, you know, it should be for autism. And, you know, at the time it was more, it was more about the triple A aspect. Like that's, you know, that's some sort of professional, you know, a triple A level or, or, or whatever. So it just had a, a sports tie in and, and athletes for autism, ASA just probably didn't fit. So anyway, we, we, we started triple A. We had a couple of very successful fundraisers, golf outings for about three, four years, raised some significant money. Um, and then the downturn in the economy came and we were branched off of autism speaks. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately with the downturn of the economy, you know, money giving isn't quite there as it used to be. So, um, those foundations had to cut back as well. And so we were one of the first branches that got cut because we were one of the new ones. Um, but because of, of, of the establishment of that group, we were able actually to bring in Ernie L's, um, and, uh, you know, Ernie had been a little bit reluctant on, on announcing 
you know, that his boy had autism, but he finally came out and, and we brought him in on, in the fold. Um, and the good thing is that uh, even though AAA disbanded, Ernie stayed on with Autism Speaks and is now is a huge advocate and, you know, he's opened up a, um, a center in, in, you know, West Palm Beach. Um, and him and his wife have done a tremendous amount of stuff for the autism world. So again, um, you're getting a group of people together and they have, they can make some sort of a significant um, uh, impact on, on society. And now living in Tri-Cities, you know, back then, uh, we ended up opening or starting the Carson Kolzik Foundation. And it was more generated to, you know, central Washington and, and, and kind of where we lived in Tri-Cities. And, you know, we had, we had a bunch of yearly golf golf outings called the Desert Bash that Stu Barnes and myself would host. Um, eventually, uh, Carrie Price was, was a part of it. Um, we haven't had one for two years. Um, probably going to start up again, uh, not this year, but next year again, now that I'm back here full time. Um, but we, over the course, we probably raised about 1.2 million. And, um, because of that, we were able to help fund, uh, it's called a responding to autism center. And so what would take place there is that if there are parents that, that think their child is on a spectrum, um, you know, there's educated, educated people there that have certificates to, to give, formal diagnosis and so they come in for screening and would be said yes we, we think he's on the spectrum and then they would be guided out from there um so that uh, you know the, the nightmare of getting on the computer and trying to find resources um like what what i myself and byron had to go through isn't there where we're trying to you know, we're, we're that guideline for them. And, and, you know, we, we made connections with, with doctors in town here. We held, we had several conferences, um, each summer, uh, where the autism world would get together and we'd bring in guest speakers and, and we would have breakout sessions where, where physicians would be better educated on autism, uh, how to, you know, what to look for so that, you know, kids are diagnosed at an earlier age so that you can get that vital, um, retraining the brain in, in the first five years. And, and so, um, it's been, I, if people ask me what's the biggest accomplishment or what's the most, um, thing that you cherish most about being, you know, about your time in the NHL. And I mean, obviously last year was special winning the Stanley cup. I didn't do it as a player, but, um, you know, as a player, I think winning the King Clancy award for, you know, for your leadership off and on the ice and, you know, what you do in the community, because, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, you you know, your, your stats and all this stuff, you know, records will be broken, yada, yada, yada. But what you do as a man, in my opinion, is what you're going to be remembered for the most. And so that award, um, you know, people thought to give that to me really, um, really meant the world to me. And, uh, uh, my dad had passed away that April, and I had the awards ceremony in June and I remember up on the stage, I, I sort of choked up because, you know, you know, my dad should be here cause he's the big reason why, you know, I have this trophy and, uh, and I think he'd just be so proud to, to know of, you know, type of man that he raised. And, and so, yeah, I think players, people, you have to understand that, you know, you you are, you do work hard, um, but you are a very fortunate individual and in that you are playing a game and you're getting paid very well. And, and, uh, you know, the, the, the importance of giving back, um, and the impact it has on society and in the community is, 
is vital. And, and I hope more and more uh, players feel that way. Think about how many people you've helped over the years. It's a completely selfless thing to do. I'm really uh, happy to hear you share that with everyone too, because I hope it sets a precedence that I think a lot of guys get it, but every time you hear it, it helps reinforce it. So I've got one last question I've got to ask for you though. I need to know if you still have that beautiful blue, gold, and black set of gear made by Heaton, your Dylan mask with Godzilla on it from, I believe, 1998, because it's one of the greatest sets of gear ever produced. Do you still have it? I don't have it, and I do. I, I actually, that, that was probably my favorite favorite model, Heaton pads. They they broke in the way you wanted to. The, uh, and here's a, here's another real interesting, quick interesting fact, and we're running out of time. But So Brian Heaton and I were the first duo, like, I wore Heaton's when I was playing junior in Tri-Cities, and I came up with the very first illusion pattern for a pad. And all it was was uh, it was uh, uh, half a triangle on each pad. So when your pads are put together, it looks like it's a, a black triangle. That was you? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Brian and I both. Yep. Never so anyway, we were really big. We were really big into the images, and the year after uh, the finals, that, that those pads, I came out the next, and I had those... I had the, um, it was a black, blue, and then it had like the, the copper stars yep. um, that were that were stitched on. So, no, we were really, uh, yeah, we really came up with some pretty uh, pretty cool ideas. But no, I wish I still, I wish I still had those pa- those pads. I love those things. God, they were beautiful, and that mask too. You were one of the last guys still wearing a Dylan mask, and the the paint job on it was iconic and. I think that's part of the reason why you're always one of my favorite goalies too, is just because you had this unbelievably cool looking gear. And nowadays it's so generic. Everybody just wears <laughs> white equipment and everybody looks and plays the same. And it kind of bums me out. And that's why. I yeah. Like you know what? It's true. It is, it is, it is true. There's a lot more personality back then. And, and, and I think because that style of gear was just starting to come out where you could be a little bit more creative, people came up with some pretty cool ideas. And now, Everything's kind of run its course, and goalies are more about. I think they're more about the illusion, and the and, you know obviously the, the gear's been cut down a little bit. So, um, you know, it says white gear you look bigger in, and so more guys than not are wearing white gear. It's just the way it goes. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. No problem, Mac. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.